song about a man called Goff and a little boy who wanted to be tarred with the same brush. Hello and welcome to episode 12 of Pod on the Hill, the official podcast of Victorian Labor. Each week we are joined by a guest with whom we discuss the political issues, events and campaign activities of the week. My name is Conrad French and I'm the digital director here at Victorian Labor. Remember to subscribe and follow us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app and leave a review. As always, if you have any questions for us or our upcoming guest, you can email us on podcast at vic.alp.org.au. This week, our guest is Stephen Kuklis. Stephen is currently the Managing Director of Market Economics. Prior to that, Stephen was the Senior Economic Advisor to former Prime Minister Julie Gillard. Before that, Stephen was the Global Head of Research and Strategy for TD Securities. In fact, I could spend an entire episode talking about Stephen's achievements and experiences, but perhaps I'll leave the last one on that to the Australian Financial Review, who describes Stephen as one of Australia's most influential economists. So we are very lucky to have Stephen as our guest today to discuss the federal government's budget, which was handed down on Tuesday night. Welcome, Stephen. G'day, Conrad. How are you? Very well. Now, before we discuss uh, Tuesday's uh, federal budget, I'd like our guests to get to know you a little bit better. Now, you were born in Adelaide and moved to Canberra, and you did all your schooling, primary and secondary, in Canberra. What was it like growing up in Canberra in those days? Canberra was very quiet. You were t- we're talking in the late 60s and the 70s, and... Uh, even into the early eighties when I went to ANU and did my economics study there, but it was, it was quiet, but it was a, it was a nice town. It's a big country town, of course, and especially back, back in the day then. But, um, I was lucky enough to have a wonderful, caring and loving family that my schoolmates were really good fun. And I was heavily into sport, which kept me very, very busy. I, um, was a reasonable rugby union player. Played cricket, hard-hitting number four batsman, <laughs> uh, with limited success. But um, Canberra was was a bit of fun, and um, but relatively easy to get around and to do things. And yeah, the school years were good. Yeah, you, were you a prop at rugby? Second row, second well, rower, second yeah, row. second row. And in the line out, I was the poor sucker who had to ca- yeah catch line out yeah. ball and and you know get your ears scrubbed off in those scrums particularly against Darren Marlin and Marist and those sorts of right. uh, opposition teams they were mean now this was pre lifting in the you couldn't lift in the you line couldn't out lift in, in the, the, those in the days. days no that was it was in the late 70s that I was playing rugby okay. until I um broke my collarbone and arm in one spear tackle I got spear tackle and that was I was about uh, 17 then and that was the end of my rugby career so it was that not a, that it was going very far <laughs> but <laughs> was that a forced retirement or was that you deciding that it's all getting a bit hard and a bit, bit, bit uh, big now Look, it, when, it, when it comes to physical pain, I'm not very good, and I didn't want to go through that again, so right. I thought I'd just stick to cricket, which so, was, uh, well, actually a lot safer than rugby. Oh, yeah, it is. Uh, so you kept, you played cricket through... Cricket through uni, and then again, um, that was the thing, I, um, you know, uh, got my job, got married, and didn't have much time on the weekends to practice, yeah. and, you know, so I think I made it to ANU um, third grade, which was, okay. which was for me, pretty yeah. good. Um but then I just sort of couldn't get to practice. I was working, I was studying, and um, yeah, that was the end of my cricket career. But now I'm a very avid cricket watcher. Ah, <laughs> it is a time-consuming pursuit playing cricket. As uh, Being a cricketer for 20 years, it does take up a lot of time. Okay, so as you said, you went to, to primary school and secondary school, and then you went to ANU. Um, what, so you finished year 12 and you've gone off to a university. What was it that drew you into being, wanting to do economics? Look, I, I still think about that, and I'm not completely sure to this day. But one of the things that I liked, uh, even as a, as a, I guess a young teenager, you know, in the early teens, was I had some fascination with numbers. And this might sound like a strange thing to say, but I was always interested in numbers and probabilities and these sorts of things. So I was always looking at, yeah, Test cricket batting averages and who's kicked the most goals in the AFL and all, all these sorts of things. So I used to get the you know the cricket wisdom almanac, certainly, which do. had every cricket game from every year. This is of course well before the internet. So each year I'd get uh, the almanac and read it cover to cover to see Surrey versus Worcestershire and Barbados versus Guyana and read all these yep. cricket scores and be fascinated by numbers. So in a sense. When I uh, finished year 12 and uh, was looking at university, I thought, well, economics sounds pretty interesting. And growing up in a household where uh, politics was discussed a lot, um, I thought, well, economics is about politics or and vice versa. The interlinkages back there were fairly clear. So I thought, I'll do economics and see what happens. So I sort of, so I sort of enrolled in economics and... Um, 
found that uh, other than some of the very strict mathematical econometric sort of stuff, which I didn't enjoy, I really enjoyed the economic history type uh, components and you know, uh, working out what happened in you know, Keynes and uh, uh, Adam Smith and then on to the political economy during the uh, 1900s and post-World War II and these sort of things and how it all emerged. So I think that's how I got into it. Right. Okay. And then, so having you finished university and you, where did, where did you first work? What was your first job out of? Ah, first job out of uni was actually in the Treasury and um, now Senator Arthur Sinodinus, former advisor to uh, John Howard, uh, interviewed me. He was in Treasury and he was the one who gave me the job and gave me you the are. break. So Arthur, if you're listening, thank you very much. <laughs> um, so I got my first job in Treasury and I remember uh, that was in 1986, if I remember correctly, as a, a graduate sort of walking into the big Treasury building, scared as all hell because I was still... Um, I think the secretary at the time was still John Stone in the Stone Age years of, of uh, Treasury. And I walked in there and there was lino floors and a metal desk. People were smoking, you know, the windows were open and smoking. So what year was this? 86, 1986. Um, and my first job was uh, with a great big um, calculator and a, a massive printout with the dots down the side of those um, A3 sheets of paper going through the quarterly... Australian national accounts and making sure that consumption plus investment plus exports minus imports added up sort of thing with a calculator and a sharp pencil. So I thought, holy smokes, is this what this is about? But uh, that, that didn't last long, thank goodness, and um, I thoroughly enjoyed my time in Treasury. Okay, so you, you had an experience in the public service but not uh, necessarily in politics as such at that stage. And you, you went on and had a, a fairly, obviously very successful career as an economist. Um, you then... When you went and worked for Julie Gillard, what, what is it that drew you into politics rather than that sort of yeah. public service? But what is it that got you into the into the politics of government and, yeah. and into politics? Well, even when I was working in financial markets, I kept in contact uh, with a range of people because, again, I was, as you said, I was lucky uh, to have some of these you know, really good jobs. And I look back at my uh, career, I have been arguably one of the luckiest people around because <laughs> I, I got good jobs. And then you know, I, I was observing things about... Facts, you know, again, as I mentioned, I like numbers and I still do to this day. And in fact, a lot of the things that I write and comment on and tweet about and these sorts of things are fact-based. And I was looking at some of the things and during the 80s and the um, Banana Republic years, the terms of trade crash, the stock market crash of 87, the early 90s recession and these sorts of things. And looking at how, yeah, how we could grow the economy. You know, as an economist, I think any economist that's worth anything at all, their bottom line's got to be, well, why are you studying economics? Why are you worried about retail sales growth? Why are you worried about um, the business investment outlook? Because it comes back to employment. And every economist who's worth their salt has got to be looking at how public policy, how the numbers on retail sales or building approvals and house prices feed in to economic growth, feed in to jobs, feed into as lower unemployment rate as you can possibly get. And, you know, things like, uh, you know, rising real wages and these sorts of things. So I was sort of thinking of that. And I, and I made contact with a few people who at the time were working in, uh, dare I say it? Um, and they're happy to admit it sort of, um, you know, Mark Latham's office at the right. time when yeah. he was opposition leader. Gosh. We did talk to Michael Cooney about uh, his yes. time in Latham's and, office. Uh, there, there were others as well. And then, of course, in uh, Wayne Swan's office. And, and it was sort of more, just a chat over a cup of coffee or a beer occasionally or just on the phone, mate, what do you think about this? And it was sort of very informal. There was no formality and it was, you know, random. You know, when something was happening, uh, you know, Tim Dixon or someone like that or would give me a call or Jim Chalmers when he was working right. um, uh, in, in Swanee's office and these things. You just have a dialogue and a chat and that was sort of how I became involved a bit more on the political side. So rather than just... You know, what's happening to GDP and will the Reserve Bank hike interest rates and what's happening to the Aussie dollar, which I still love, um, it actually then spilt over into, well, what am I doing here? Not just working out whether the Aussie dollar is going to 80 cents or 70 cents. What do we, what's it mean for, for the, for, you know, the Australian economy? And how, and what effect you could have on that, on those levers? In, in, the, in a tiny little way. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so without overstating. Yeah. It. No, yeah, no, obviously, yeah. yeah. But, but to the extent that you can sort of help frame a debate and you know the, the, a couple of um, big bugbears to me were uh, and I think even to this day the um, uh, the people in senior positions in the late 90s early 2000s acknowledged that after the 96 election loss 
and the very effective campaigning from Howard and Costello about you know those record high interest rates under the Labor, the Beasley and black hole, the and Beasley black hole, all that sort of stuff that annoyed the absolute hell out of me because they weren't true, they weren't correct, and uh, as I said, uh, yeah, Howard very very effectively ran campaigns to that extent, and I didn't think Labor were being strong enough in in saying, well, hang on, mate, you know the, the, what you're talking about is not correct. There were reasons for high interest rates and the deficit and the recession and and okay they were difficult times to be sure I'm not I'm not denying that but I I thought that um you know maybe if you were able to uh, to articulate why a budget deficit is sometimes good why high interest rates are sometimes acceptable in terms of the tools that that policymakers use to manage the economy you would have uh, certainly somewhat neutralise that, if not totally neutralise it, if you're able to articulate that, hang on, a budget deficit created jobs or helped mm. stop unemployment going even higher uh, and these sorts of issues. So that's how I got involved and then one thing led to another and um, after the 2010 election, the 17 days of negotiations with Oakshot and Windsor and others and um, um, I had a beer with Jim Chalmers and he said, look, Julia's looking for someone to work in her office and I was thoroughly, thoroughly flattered Went home and had to think about it for a little while, thinking, oh, my God, what am I doing? <laughs> and, um, and uh, of course, of course, you can't say no to an offer like that. No, when a, when a prime minister comes knocking. Yes, I, was fl- I said I was very flattered and mm. and I thought, it was, yes, it's like uh, one of those ones that you, know, you, you, you get an offer like that and, of, of course, you're going to say yes, but you just say, I do need to think about it and, um, yeah, and... The rest is history. It's going to be a, a time-consuming and, and a hectic time, as I imagine it was. But and I and I'd like to come back to that a little uh, later on. But I want to move now to the budget um, on Tuesday night. And the government had already foreshadowed some changes to education policy and 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 to the Australian Federal Police and a few other bits and bobs. But what for you was the biggest surprise out of Tuesday night's budget? The biggest surprise was the about face of how the coalition parties, Liberal Party, and Scott Morrison in particular, are viewing. Uh, managing the budget. Two things struck me in looking at the hard numbers, and, and even more the hard numbers than the actual policies in a sense. But um, but we can get on that onto that later if you wish. But the about face was one that having spent an inordinate amount of time denying that one of the budget issues has been a lack of revenue. That here they go, they put on a bank tax, they hike the Medicare levy, <laughs> and realise that hey, revenue is an important thing if you're. Medium-term plan is balancing the budget, which is not unreasonable. If you want to balance the budget over the medium term and you know that uh, the electorate, the community, are demanding a decent base level of funding for education, health, aged care, um, even roads and defence and these things, you know, there is a big demand on the public purse, and I think it's growing for reasons that we can perhaps touch on later, that you need more revenue. Um, plain and simple. And, of course, the debate then is where do you raise it? Is it the goods and services tax, income tax, company tax, or Medicare levies and bank uh, bank uh, taxes? So the first thing was the about face on revenue being an important part of managing the budget. So they acknowledge that. You know, special subject, the bleeding obvious, as they say. <laughs> the other one, of course, is the debt and deficit issue, that uh, here we are with um, uh, the level of net government debt, hitting just under 20% of GDP, you know, exceeding anything that we've seen since the aftermath of World War II. Now, why is that important? Because they were the ones who promised to pay off debt. We, you know, if you look back at uh, the coalition economic ministers in the Rudd-Gillard years, uh, they were absolutely fervent in about debt and deficit being an emergency, a problem, a disaster, other adjectives I can't think of right now. But they were the ones that were saying that when we get in, we're going to pay it off. And here we are. They inherited net debt to GDP ratio of about 10.5%. The numbers that came out on Tuesday night confirm it's going to hit just under 20%. And you actually, while I didn't publish these in the budget papers on Treasury, there is a wonderful um, link to um, some of the uh, government debt numbers that go back to Federation or in fact, about 1910. I don't think we've actually got numbers okay. prior to 1910. But, <laughs> but a fair way back, it, a Fair way back. So you've actually got to go to the period in the aftermath of World War II where, of course, you know, government debt was you know, 100% of GDP because they just had to raise money for the war effort. And, of course, it then started ratcheting down through the, uh, through the 1950s. And the golden era. And, and all those things. And, you know, uh, and, and so you've got to go back there to see the last time that net government debt was that high. And here they are 
not even worried about it, yeah. not promising to pay off debt, not mentioning it anymore. And the hypocrisy is the thing that stood out for me. So in a sense, yeah, um, I don't think debt or deficit are good or bad. They're a function of running policies. A bit like saying, is a is an incision uh, from a surgeon good or bad? Well, if they're actually making that incision to improve your health, then it's good. If they're doing it for fun, well, that's bad. Yeah. Yeah, is a deficit good yeah. or bad? Well, if it's helping the economy to grow, fine. There if is good debt. If they're, if they're doing it to sort of um, uh, spray money around the economy when they don't, when you don't need to, yep. and they're doing it for polit- political reasons, not economic reasons, then it's bad. Yep. I'll, I'm going to skip forward a bit um, on my questions to because you've sort of touched on a few things about the way they're about face on this budget. And, I mean, the last few budgets, particularly the, the 2014 budget, they uh, did, yes. did them severe <laughs> political damage. Yeah. Um, with that in mind, what's the, what do you think is the overall mission of this budget then? I think it's political uh, that they do want to completely wipe the slate clean of the 2014 budget and the political baggage that came with that. That was a disaster, and they acknowledge that now. And the proof of that is in the budget that we saw the other night, that the zombie measures were um, uh, taken out of the budget figuring, so they realised that uh, you know cutting unemployment benefits to people for six months or whatever it was and yeah. Medicare co-payments and all these other things, they're just not acceptable. They're not acceptable electorally and, uh, and economically they're of no real benefit either. They're just um, sort of zealotry coming through. So that's that's it's really just sort of recasting their uh, or getting rid of that baggage which they know cost them dearly politically. Yeah. That said, there's still um, uh, issues to do with education and skills funding, so making sure that our workforce is fully skilled, educated and uh, to the maximum of their ability. And that ranges from, gosh, rocket scientists who go to university and do PhD uh, theses to um, regular workers doing the jobs that we all need every day, but having the skill level so that they can... Um, uh, aspire to something else so they can get a decent job with a decent rate of pay and be fully employed when the economy is such that we can sort of absorb the workforce that way. So they've still got that problem that they're not addressing at all. And some of the other uh, issues about fairness and efficiency and the inequality concerns that are going on right now are still left hanging out to dry and probably left to the Labor side to do something about. Okay. Do you think it's an election preparation budget? Well, yes, yes. Yeah. I, th- I think what they're doing is just clearing clearing the groundwork. And again, the bank tax, yeah, fair enough. You know, that, that's that's not the worst thing I've seen. The Medicare increase, Medicare increase, even though uh, the disability insurance scheme was fully included in the budget numbering in the 2013 PFO, the pre-election yeah. fiscal outlook, and uh, was in the Labor's numbers. Look again, uh, and and I would acknowledge this that at a time when you do have a revenue problem, that we did need to look at some revenue measures. So the Medicare um, uh, increased by half a percentage point. Look, fair, fair enough. If that is actually being hypothecated against yeah. um, against the uh, uh, disability insurance scheme, and it frees up another few billion dollars to either you know, marginally reduce the budget deficit or to be used elsewhere. Look, fair enough. I, I don't think that's the that's the worst thing I've seen. Okay, I'm going to go back now. You touched on the demand for growth in infrastructure. Would you like to explain expand on that a bit? Yeah, more? look, as a general statement, and I want to emphasise it's a general statement. Yep. Infrastructure spending is terrific. I, I like the concept, and it's an important economic issue for a couple of reasons. Once it's being built, you're adding to jobs. Yep. And, you know, people pour cement and make timber and glass windows if you're building sort of airports and things like that. So good, terrific. That, then that's, and that's a good thing. Arguably as important, if not more, more important, that if the infrastructure is the right sort, um, you're left with a legacy asset, that you're left with an airport that will fly tourists, business people, freight in and out of the country. And that's got to be good for productivity, that we're able to be more efficient in how we uh, deal with that part of the economy or a road that's built that means that people spend less time, trucks spend less time stuck in traffic jams or build public sector um, transport within the cities so people can get to and from work quickly. It's, it's, it's efficient, it's good, it's decent, so there's a leftover legacy yeah. there. The issue, of course, and this is this has been throughout history, and um, and I suspect there's been you know several examples of uh, the so-called white elephants um, <laughs> that the you get these uh, infrastructure programs that 
yield nothing. And I think the classic one is the uh, Alice Springs to Darwin Railway. Mm. Is I think it cost a billion dollars. The Howard government did that. I'm, I think I think they had a couple of marginal seats in the t- two seats when in the Northern in Territory were, yeah. were both marginal. I think oh well, let's build this. I think they then they spent a billion on it and sold it for a hundred million. But anyway, wow. So right. so there are some white elephants that yeah. are, that are just not. Worthy at all, but basically the infrastructure side of the, the pork barreling got, top infrastructure, stuff which is just about. just rubbish, yes, yeah. and should be called out for what it is. But good quality infrastructure, which is yeah, you know, most of it's so obvious. Just have a look at the traffic, you know, in in the big cities right now. Look at the you know congestion around um, uh, the, the airports, for example. Yeah, you know, they need to be addressed. And if you look at how our economies are transitioning from the goods based type. Um, output towards services and things like tourism is booming at the moment. Terrific. That's a great job generating thing for Australia. We should encourage it because foreign tourists come in and spend all their money and employ us, which yeah. is great, and buy our wine and eat at our restaurants and, you, and things. And you yeah. can't outsource tourism, so... No, no. <laughs> um, so you want to get them here quickly as efficiently as you can. And we are a long bloody way from the rest of the world, yeah. particularly if they want to come to sort of Sydney, Melbourne, and but even Brisbane and the rest of it. You want to have really good facilities to make them come here. So um, that's what's really important about good quality infrastructure. It's obvious. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, so I'm going to... One of the things that they they brought up was the funding of superannuation uh, to be used for for house for house prices. Yeah. Now, there's been a growing discontent for a number of years about house prices in Australia, particularly as it relates to first home buyers. Um, how can first home buyers? I, mean, I guess every I mean every week. I mean, I've recently in the last couple of years, I've I've been through this process, and every weekend <laughs> there is plethora of first home buyers. That have they've saved their thirty thousand dollars. They've got their mortgage to their full fifty five hundred thousand. There's two incomes, and they go off to a, a, an auction or like a boardroom auction, or they put an offer in, and they're blown away by four or five people, four or five investors that already have four or five, six, twenty properties. As it turns out, for some of our liberal MPs, yes. how, how can a, a first home buyer oh, be yes. able to compete with ambitious housing investors? Yeah, this, this is a, a problem that sort of had its. Um, beginnings with a couple of things. It's, it's interesting to, when you're looking for solutions, you've got to look back to what caused it, in a sense, I think. And, and of course, we've had incredibly generous tax treatment of, um, of uh, investment properties. And so the incentive for someone on a high, middle to high income is to negative gear property. It's a tax incentive. It's, it's, you're getting the other taxpayers of Australia to subsidize your interest costs. By definition, that's what yep. negative gearing is. And when you make a capital gain, you get tax concession on the gains that you make. So for everybody on a half decent income, when they sit down, if they bother to sit down with a financial planner or, you know, their accountant or someone will say, buy an investment property. The government's giving you free money. So that's, yeah, part of a legacy of that profligate last few years of the Howard Costello years. So we're still we're paying for that now, and that's inflated the and problem. And things like the first homeowners grant, and- uh, which just went straight into bottom line prices. So that, that that's they're the thing. So okay, um, you want you want to work out what do you do now? Okay, that that's happened. So what do you do now? So first of all, it goes. I think without saying that, you know, re- re- reduce those uh, tax incentives. So phase out negative gearing change the concessional uh, capital gains tax treatment. So they're two that will take that investor component or, or, or neutralise, if not eliminate, that investor component of demand for housing. Um, and that's the important thing. There are other things. The, the problem with housing at the moment isn't a lack of demand. So if you have a policy that allows first home buyers to tap into their super in one form or another, the one that we saw in the budget or just a, an outright, well, I've got 50 grand in super, so I'll put that as a deposit towards my house, is adding to demand. And it will almost inevitably feed into the amount that that first home buyer is willing to bid at the auction when they turn so up. So all it does is increase. So, oh, I've got the access to 50 grand. And so the house goes to, say, 600 for argument's sake. Oh, I'll bid 650. So I've got this extra 50. So prices go up. So you look at that sort of side. So there's those, there's those things. And then there are other things. And so uh, all the, yeah, just, sorry. to hold it, just because this is something they've actually bought in and it's a yes. bit of a hobby horse of mine. So yes. all you're yes. going to do is you're just putting more more money into the demand side. Correct. all you're going to do is lift house prices and within six months, everyone's back where they were at the square It's washed out of the system. So the first person to buy might get the advantage because they've got their hands on that extra money. But of course, it, it, it does nothing. It does nothing to reduce investor demand. By definition, it's not, nothing to do yeah. with investors. And it does nothing to, to address supply issues. It does nothing to address... 
um, you know, vacant housing, which is something of an issue. It does nothing to address foreign investor demand, which is again another issue. So it's one of those policy areas that's superficially appealing, but once you scratch beneath the surface, you can see that there's yeah. some there's some problems with it. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. And if you go on and any. Yeah. yeah. So so again, um, unfortunately. Um, like uh, turning around a, a big uh, oil tanker, you can't fix the housing affordability issue quickly. It, it can't be done. That's uh, that's the problem. We but can't have the house prices all of a sudden yet. falling and having and and fixing up everybody's ability to buy a house. Because if we have house prices collapsing, I dare say half the first home buyers will probably wouldn't have a job because it means the economy is in in bad conditions. If that were to happen, yeah. So you think about okay. And just because these things take a long time to work out doesn't mean you start don't start doing them. But uh, you do actually try to create incentives for there to be higher supply of dwellings. Build more in that that's code for in economics. Yep. So you want people to we want to have a housing construction, not necessarily a boom, but we want to build a lot of places. We know that immigration is high in Australia, and that's a terrific thing. That's a really vital part of our economy and our social fabric that we maintain that two hundred odd thousand people that come into Australia each year. Great, terrific. They need to be housed. Yep. <laughs> they need somewhere to live. And yep. whether they rent or buy doesn't matter, but we need to build a lot to house them and allow people uh, to get into the first uh, first home buyer's market as well. So that's the first thing. Now, there is this issue about whether it's a state or a local government issue, rezoning of land, and people don't want to live out you know, miles away where there's no schools and hospitals and shopping centres and the transport to the city is rubbish. So... It's got to be done very cautiously and carefully, but it doesn't mean it can't be done. Um, yeah, I remember um, you know, where we first lived in Canberra. Going back yeah. to that, we were at the, we were in the last we we're in a suburb called Lyons. Right. We were the last suburb in Canberra in nineteen sixty seven or something. Whenever we moved into there, when I was really little, now that's right in the slap bang in the middle of the city. So we were at the boondocks, but it got encapsul- encapsulated in, in the growing population. I think my my father, my mother, sorry, grew up yeah. in North Baldwin, which was the last yeah. stop, and is now. <laughs> Yeah, in a city, yeah. yeah, indeed. So that, that's just sort of like a little anecdote. And so you know, but you've got to make sure that when that land is is uh, made ready for dwellings, for houses, apartments, whatever you want to call them, that there is that people do want to go there still. That you are close to a shop, you are close to a school, you are close to public transport that will get the people who live there to work easily uh, and relatively. Relatively easily, anyway. So you don't just release the land and say, okay, go and live out there, because no one will go there, because it isn't desirable. That's that's entirely correct. So you've got to have this strategy where you uh, have a land release and a land um, serviceability and infrastructure on housing. So you do have water, electricity, sewerage, and transport so that people want to live there. You start it now. You start it now. It's not going to happen in a... Happen quickly, and I noticed you know the Andrews government here is releasing land and trying to get new suburbs built. Again, that's not going to fix the problem next year, or even the year after, or even the year after. But when those extra ten to twenty thousand new dwellings are built, serviced with good quality um, social services, people want to live there. Great. Yeah. So you've got to. So basically, you're saying we've got to cool the market by taking out some of those incentives that investors have, whilst also increasing the supply. So we can't because we can't afford to have house prices capitulate. Um, that would be correct. Bad for everybody. Yes, you, you don't want a house price crash. Look what happened in Ireland and yeah. UK and All over US over the in the GFC. It was a disaster. Yep. Okay. Now the other thing was in the budget is, and it's I think for the last, I mean at least um, in my memory, the last sort of twenty years, the Liberal Party have shown an ideological opposition, sort of to welfare recipients. I mean, we saw that like. I yeah, remember, yeah, shocking. John Howard and the work for the Dole programs that they introduced. Yep. That, they it is a it seems to be a whipping boy of the of the conservative side of politics, and we've seen this again now. They want to introduce drug testing for welfare recipients, and also uh, yes, today yeah. I think it was the profile profiling basically by testing the water in yes. certain areas to see who the most likely to, to <laughs> test positive for drugs. Now, the fact that I New Start now is is two hundred and sixty seven dollars a week, one hundred and sixty dollars below the poverty line. Um, only 20, 27% of New South allowances have a disability, only one in six applications for disability uh, support pension successful, and 70% of New Start uh, recipients have been out of work for more than a year. Now, what damage does it yeah. do to people and their future prospects and their children's future prospects to be on these low, really low yeah. payments? It's, again, a lot of economics is obvious. It's obvious. They're, they're in dire straits, and that feeds into... 
social dislocation as well as just the um, difficulty and even humiliation of being in that position. They don't have enough money to eat and have a roof over their head. It's 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 absurd. Andrew Lee's done a lot of work on uh, analysing this because it is a an, if, with my economics hat on, taking away the social aspects of it for a moment. There is a huge pool of people who are unproductive. They don't have a job. They don't have an opportunity, and they and they fall away out of the workforce. So, um, what you do is ensure that they have a decent safety net for a decent lifestyle, because the dignity and um, that comes with that actually encourages them to be active participants in the community and in the economy. It gives them a better chance of getting a job as well. And simultaneous to that, this is where we come back to that issue on education, skills and training. If you have a well-targeted, well-structured education, skills and training package that these people who have been, you know, on below the poverty line, living, you know, really unpleasant lives, to be sure, actually get that opportunity and you may not fix it for everybody, but if you fix it for even, uh, you know, a, a reasonable proportion of that part of your population, then not only is the, the social benefits, again, obvious, but the economic benefits are even more obvious because you've got a highly productive workforce mm. and the economy benefits from spending a little bit of money looking after your least well-off in the economy. And, and so if you persecute them and discourage them, the... Um, uh, it's not the way to fix it. Is it simple? Is it simple as just putting more money into it, or is it more complicated than that? Uh, it, it is a little more complicated because the the thing is that you want to. Uh, what what often happens? Almost all the studies who look that look at this thing that people lose their engagement with the workforce, and in fact, in in the most extreme case, they become very very hard to employ because they've if they've been long term unemployed, they've lost skills. And in this current gosh dynamic uh, world economy that we live in, you've got to have an attachment to the workforce to at least maintain some some skill, even if it's a relatively basic skill set. So and they lose their attachment, they lose their ability to do things. So you've got to be providing them, you know, enough money to live off. But as I mentioned before, you've got to be able to ensure that they have the wherewithal, the attachment to the labour force to get a job when an opportunity comes up. So that's the critical thing. So it's not just money, it's having the the infrastructure to give them uh, a purpose and to give them a training and to give them a skill and to give them encouragement and actually, in a sense, even give them a helping hand into a new job. Look at opportunities and have the government even provide some of those jobs, you know. And, and so they actually, at the end of a three-month, six-month stint, they can go to the next employer and say, look, I did this and I can undertake this particular skill. So I've done it for three months because I was in this particular government program. It, it, it Again, it makes a lot of sense. And paid work that's... That yeah, oh, indeed, yes. skilled um, yes. ability, not planting trees on the side of a freeway. No, and painting rocks white yeah, exactly. and, like, and rubbish like that. It's actually yeah. giving them a skill. And look, at that, again, uh, this is not in any way um, condescending or patronising anything, but, but you, know, you just have to look around every day of your life and see the jobs that people do range from you know rocket scientists <laughs> to, to various places to people who do... Um, Seemingly menial tasks, but such important tasks in keeping your economy going. They, and also, they clean the streets, they empty your garbage, they do this and that. And as I said, I want to emphasise that's not a patronising thing. Heaven forbid, I'm so glad that there are people who have got the wherewithal to do that. The division of labour is something that is just. I my my father-in-law often teases my inability to do anything practical, <laughs> and I, that, that's why yeah. we have a division of labour. I. Yeah, yeah, I employ a plumber to come and fix my toilet. Indeed, yeah. I I don't know how to do it for starters. No. That's the first the first limit is I don't know how to fix yeah. my toilet. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I I agree entirely with that. That's yeah, okay. Um, the the other thing in the budget that I found interesting was that whilst it wasn't as aggressive, there was still cuts that yes. happened. Yes, there was the changes to higher education. Um, now people have to, having to pay back hex at $42,000. Yes. There was no mention of climate change. There was the, and more cuts to the yeah. Climate Change Authority. There was uh, cuts to foreign aid. How, are, is this just the, the Liberal Party trying to sneak in new cuts and how damaging can these cuts be that we don't talk about because we get caught up in the bells and whistles of the yeah. other stuff? Really important that uh, we do 
talk about them. You know, some of the things that you just mentioned there are absolutely vital. If you know, we're to be a, a global citizen, if we're to be a decent participant in you know, in the world stage on things like climate policy and those sorts of things, and the fact that they're not mentioned, the fact that you know they didn't talk about or that Morrison didn't talk about foreign aid and climate change in his budget speech. And you have to go to table X76 of the budget paper to see a two-line little uh, table there that announces the cuts that, that were there. Um, it is really a problem. It's, re- it's really an issue. And even the Conservatives in the UK, for example, have a have um, committed to ha- have uh, foreign aid at 0.5% of GNP, which is the sort of global benchmark. Mm. We're, I think, I haven't checked this number in the budget yeah, paper, right. but I think we're down to sort of below 0.3. So we're, we're absolutely miserable, stingy bastards when it comes to yeah. foreign aid. And the other thing, when this government and it, it is so uh, dogmatic about um, our influence and terrorism and all these other things, foreign aid actually has some benefits in terms of appeasing uh, and influencing the people who you give the foreign aid to. It's not just, uh, as uh, the Andrew Bolts and others would say, spraying money to, you know, different That countries. idea of soft diplomacy. It is. It's a soft diplomacy that we're helping you, so, you know, you help us. And, uh, and, it, and it can be in terms of, you know, managing, you know, refugee issues and things. So, you know, we'll give you some you know, country XYZ, I won't name yeah. any. We'll, gi- we'll give you a, a particular foreign aid commitment. If you help us track down these nasty people who are there they are there yeah. that's true um and you might get a bit of cooperation rather than slashing your foreign aid to them and they might get a bit annoyed with us and if you can if you can make a, a home country a more desirable place to be then you have less oh, indeed correct and, and all those things and it's actually a decent thing to do again it's it, and yeah. we're a global citizen and all the rich uh, economies around the world countries around the world have generally or have a much more generous foreign aid budget than we do now yeah we're, not even, we're miserable not even moving to the sort of the moral philosophical position of correct the value of foreign aid uh as a just being an ethical position to take correct correct okay um i want to move to your time working yes. for the prime minister now yes. we ha- had michael cooney on the podcast a couple of weeks ago who you obviously know from your time there and we posed these questions to him as well so i'd like i'd like to see what the comparison is on that what I've got two questions. Firstly, what did you see as the greatest success of the Gillard government? Oh, it was managing a minority in the House of Representatives, and that's an all-encompassing thing for actually getting stuff done, that uh, policies that uh, led to the price on carbon were really earth-shattering. The Gonski Education Disability Insurance Scheme... uh, another couple of really big issues that got through the parliament and Labor and and uh, Julia Gillard didn't have a majority in the House of Reps or the Senate. People forget about that. Uh, so it was both houses that she had to uh, have lots of cups of tea with the <laughs> um, uh, with the minor parties. So getting stuff done was was remarkable and continuing the process uh, of, of growing the economy. Sure, well, there was the hangover from the global financial crisis, but if you actually look back at the numbers now, the hard numbers on the economy, again, getting back to my factual <laughs> issue and my love of numbers, you know, you look back, got you on. yeah, you look back at the, at the numbers, the economy kept growing. And just one statistic, which I really like at the moment is that at the worst point of the global financial crisis and the, and the hangover of it, because uh, the hangover lasted many, many years. Arguably, we still have some of the hangover. But, you know, but, you know in the immediate, that period in 2010, 11, 12, 13, the peak unemployment rate was 5.9%. It got there for one month, and then it started falling again. The latest unemployment number is 5.9%. And here we are with the economy allegedly in wonderful hands being managed beautifully by the, uh, by the coalition party. So the ability to keep the economy growing to cap the unemployment rate in the worst global environment in since the Great Depression in the 1930s was remarkable. And getting stuff done, and all of those things, as I said, the, the uh, carbon price, disability insurance schemes, we're seeing a high-profile um, uh, issue now, and Gonski Education funding were, were good things. So what was the greatest? The greatest of all of those? You've, oh, you've gosh. seven or eight? Uh, well, look... And, I, and I would say I'd say carbon pricing. I'd yep. say that's that's the thing that's most most important. If you ignore that, you're a mug. Okay. To the other question, <laughs> yes. 
what if you had your time over again, what would you do differently? Gosh, um, I think, yeah, I, I think I would have been a little bolder in terms of now. This is ignoring a political constraint, okay? okay? So this is yeah. more theoretical. All right. Uh, prob- probably more theoretical. Anyway, it would be uh, looking at the progressivity of the tax system. Okay. Uh, in fact, one of the things I'm looking at now, just personally, nothing to do with uh, anyone's policy I, I might want to just emphasise, I'm just looking at this out of curiosity, is actually um, some of the work that I did with Michael Cooney, uh, per chance, at the Chifley Research Centre, was the impact on bottom-line GDP growth and inequality. Now, I'll just spend a minute on that, if I may. Yeah, of course. But there's been an absolute ton of research done on how greater equality in income distribution and wealth distribution leads to stronger GDP. Now, I'll spend a minute more, because if you think about one of the things in the global economy and even the Australian economy right now, is that we've had you know, global interest rates at you know, ridiculously low levels for basically a decade. We've had budget deficits very wide, which is helping to grow the economies, of course. Yet the economic growth is still moderate around the world. It's not strong, certainly way below what it was pre-GFC. And one of the reasons, of course, is because inequality has increased. So if I can use a stylized example to make my point, just say the economy has an extra million dollars through economic growth. And if you gave that million dollars to, say, Gina Reinhart, and I'm not picking on her for any other reason than she's rich, she wouldn't even know she had it. Her personal wealth's $10 billion, so an extra $1 million would not impact her spending decision, her investment decision, her consumption decision, and the bottom line GDP would be unchanged. If you gave that $1 million, if you allocated $20 a week for a year to 1,000 people, that equals roughly $1 million, to low and middle income earners, their marginal propensity to spend an extra $20 a week is very, very high. A poor person getting 20 bucks a week notices it. And the research says that they tend to spend most, if not all of it. So if you're a retailer, if you're working in the economy and you allocate a million dollars away from the, the very, very rich through the tax system, for example, progressive income tax structure and the like, and you allocate that money. So it's budget neutral. It doesn't cost the budget one cent. <laughs> you actually get a stronger economy and, right. and with budget neutral. So I would be arguing, and with the help of Treasury, you have these numbers at, at their fingertips, yeah, you'd say you'd want a bit more progressivity on the on the tax structure. You'd, and, even, and even through the income tax structure. We don't talk about income tax rates in Australia anymore other than bloody bracket creep. And that's all we talk about. We haven't had anybody sort of saying, well, or other than this... Um, uh, debt reduction tax on very high income earners, the one that's that's ending on the 1st of July. Um, that's about the only time we vaguely mention it. But if you actually increase the progressivity of the tax system in a revenue neutral mm. way, so you lift the tax free threshold you know, from 18200 to, say, 25000 and you put a few other you know, steps in your income tax structure that doesn't cost the budget any money, so you're not blowing out the budget, but you actually get a stronger economy. Yeah. It's interesting, interesting you say about people spend the money. I No, it doesn't matter how much money I earn. I seem to never have any of it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, Whereas okay. people don't yeah. have that problem. They, yeah. they don't even know what's in their bank account. Yeah. And I'm, I'm being a bit, bit patronising. Yeah, no. And good luck to them. That's half their luck, and I hope I wish them well. It it's, makes, not, it makes, it's not a class war issue. It's half the luck, but it's about... It's also about growing the economy. So I'm ignoring the social aspect. Again, I've got my economist cap on here. Growing the economy faster and generating more jobs just means you, you have a slightly uh, steeper... Progressivity in your income tax structure. I think it's a. It's a so I would, I would argue that. I don't know whether I'd get very far, but I'll yeah, try. No, I'll no, try. Okay, that's a. It's a really good answer. I just actually, um, it's. You're absolutely right. You think about the new start figures we had before. Instead of five hundred dollars a week, basically, you pick twenty dollars. Make five, someone go from five hundred to five hundred and twenty dollars. Yep, that is a substantial yep. increase. And they will spend that money in the economy. Yeah. So the and whether it's you know buying their kids shoes or once a week I'm going to go out to the movies because I've got a bit of money and I feel good. It's money that's in the economy. But whereas if you've got a billion dollars, like yep. if you're if you're a billionaire and, and, and someone think, gives you twenty dollars a week, you, you don't well, it, even, it, as you say you don't, million, buy, you don't buy more things. A, a million dollars yep. is a drop in the ocean. I, I yep. 
Yep. It's something that has always struck me is, is how big a number a billion is I think I've read it somewhere that a, a billion seconds is 37 years and a million seconds is 11 days. I right. That's, okay. But, for me, that's, that's how I oh, always sort of oh, I think okay. about it as a how much bigger that number is. And so, right. if you get right. eleven days compared to thirty-seven years, it's much smaller than twenty days. Correct. Like twenty days. Correct. So, yeah. Okay. So that's I, I, that's a really nice answer. I, I really like that. Okay. So I just want to, before the last budget question before okay. we move on. A lot of conservative commentators, yeah. and we saw some of the the front pages in the news court around the budget. They talked about it being a labour budget. Oh, yes. What's your take on that theory? Uh, I don't understand that. It's, again, one of these perceptions. And if anybody has read what I've written in the last few years, um, I think they said it because it was big spending, big taxing. And it is. And big deficit. And people associate that with labour. And as I wrote for The Guardian this week, I'll do a little plug for my, artic- my budget article, it highlighted the fact that... Um, the tax to I'll be a bit. This is a bit of jargon, so stay tuned for the next minute or two. If I need it clarified, I'll ask. The tax to GDP ratio that is in Morrison's budget is the sixth highest on record. So that yeah, so it's a very high taxing government. But you know who the first five are? Howard Costello. So what's what's about a high tax labor high taxing? In fact, labor has always had a labor never had tax this high ever in there in the history of the Labor Party being in government. So that's one thing. We mentioned before government debt being at 19.8% of GDP. Labor have never had a government debt to GDP ratio that high. So I'm not using the dollar value. It's a share of GDP. So it's a real, it, it sort of takes account of the size of the economy. So where's labor policy in that? So that's from the big picture sort of, um, budget bottom line numbers and even the budget deficit. Um, yeah, we've, we're in up for our gosh, when we get out to 2021, that year that we get to a, a notional surplus. Until then, uh, this government's going to have uh, seven budget deficits. Well, Labor only in power for six years, so I guess you... <laughs> but, you know, so they're having deficits at, at, at least the same rate, if not more, than Labor. So it's not that. And then you cut to the sort of policy issues um, on some of the things that we've already mentioned, and you think, well, on education and... Um, uh, these sorts of things in particular, it's not a Labor budget because Labor wouldn't do that. We, you know, it, it would not be happening. So I think that's an absurd representation. I think it's just the, yes, the Andrew Bolts and the News Corp and the people like that sort of um, being absolutely horrified and you know, even uh, Peter Credlin and people like that being absolutely horrified that government spending and taxing is so high. Or and, it's just... And, that- it's, and, it's, and it's, so it's their way of lashing out even though the facts show something completely different. Or it's a way for them to attack Malcolm Turnbull and Scott Morrison well, for a yeah, political yeah, purpose. Yeah, because they're still annoyed, so they'd be they'd be hating this. You can imagine, um, um, you know, Abbott, Christensen, and these sort of people having a few glasses of red wine, you know, on, on budget night, thinking, "What? Who the hell's budgets this? You know, it's it's nothing that we want to do." Interesting that you mentioned red wine. <laughs> right. Yes. Okay. I have it on good authority that you're not impartial to a glass of red. And my yes. own impressive research skills have oh, also suggested that you're a prodigious user of Twitter. Yes and yes. <laughs> it is, is it in fact the case that one of your favourite pastimes is mixing the two and tweeting at Chris uh, Kenny? It, it was until he blocked me. <laughs> it was. But even without wet red wine, Chris, Chris was always a fun person to sort of dig because he came up with these harebrained ideas. And he said, and, and I think almost all the time I was always civil. You know, I, I no longer fall into the trap of being um, impolite. But you say, mate, what's the source of this information? Yeah, I still do it now to some extent. And um, yeah, what's your source? If you say that Labor are big taxing, big spending, point to me to something in the Bureau of Statistics numbers or the budget papers that show that. And of course, they can't because it's not correct. But yes, Chris, he was. Um, yes, he blocked me on Twitter, which was sort of um, quite liberating on reflection because <laughs> I've actually got time to do other things now and tweet about other things which are much more interesting. And um, sometimes with a glass of red, sometimes not. Okay. Another question I've got for you. Yes. Now, I, I had a, a bit of a problem with the pronunciation of, of your name earlier. And, yes. And, but, however, now I've met you, I would find it very hard to believe that I would actually confuse you for someone else just because you, right. you had a similar sounding name. Oh, but yes. this is something that has actually happened to you, I believe. It has. It has. I, I, um, about in 2012 or 13, I, I, um, 
Jared Henderson wrote an article. I think that's when he was still writing for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. I think it was. He wrote this article and uh, was, again, one of these uh, rants of his that was uh, comparing uh, the 2012 budget to the Whitlam years, big spending, big taxing, just the sort of thing that we discussed. And so I took the liberty of emailing him and said, look, dear, dear Jared, you know, here are some facts. You know, and I went through line by line by line by line of the errors that he made in the article. I said, yeah, I'm just I'm just letting you know, and, you know, kind regards, Stephen Kukoulos, you know, here you go and well done. Well, he emailed back something and said, oh, weren't you the person that I had that run-in with in, you know, 2008 uh, talking about Middle Eastern affairs or something? First of all, I had no idea what he was talking about, but then I did a quick Google and it was actually the former writer for the age, Jason Katsukas. <laughs> so he got Kukulis and Katsukas messed up. So I sort of had a bit of a bit of a piss take from him and said, mate, all these bloody Greek sounding names are the same to you. And uh, so he was thoroughly, thoroughly um, annoyed. And right. I, got, I got onto his media watchdog blog one Friday about five years ago. So that was that was, that was a real uh, pinnacle in my career, a real achievement. <laughs> but Katsukas could call us, they're all the same, to, you... to Gerard Henderson. So I call him Gerald now. Just to, <laughs> if you get like... up, Gerard, Gerard Henderson's nose, you've done well. On yes, my, I was thrilled. On my yes. book. Okay, so that now brings us to the lightning round questions. That we okay. Have. Now, Gosh. these are genuine lightning round questions. Okay. I just need quick answers. Yes. Greatest Collingwood moment you've experienced? Probably the 1990 grand final. That was brilliant. 2010 was pretty good, the second one, (laughs) after the draw. But 1990, we had something a bit more special about it. It was just... Because I have a bit of a soft spot for St Kilda, but it was because we beat Essendon in the fight at quarter time. You know, that was was great. And I'd never in my lifetime at that stage had Collingwood won a premiership. So, yep, 1990, the good old pies. What was the worst experience as a Collingwood supporter? A couple of weeks ago when we lost to bloody Carlton, (laughs) or any time we lose to Carlton, but particularly uh, a couple of weeks ago when, oh, you know, we couldn't kick straight. So any time we lose to Carlton or... Or Wayne Harms, dare uh, I say any more, that out of bounds when he knocked it in and um, you, we lost that grand final because of that umpiring decision. As a Collins supporter who wasn't even born in, when Wayne <laughs> Harms did that, I'm appalled by the behaviour of Carlton and the umpires. Uh, what's the last book you read? Last book I read um, was, um, let me think, let me think. It was, oh gosh, probably... Um, uh, one of the John Grisham books. I, okay. I'm, I'm a sucker for just reading escape books at home because I, uh, it's the only way I can get to sleep because <laughs> I'm thinking of numbers. Not even yeah, anyway, long story. But probably um, can't remember what it was called. It was some sort of wonderful a, murder mystery. But a John, a John, John Grisham. Grisham. I like I like that. It's a bit like well, I like uh, Midsummer Murders and mm. TV shows like that and New Tricks. You know those sorts of British detective ones. My that, that's my complete and utter escape. My partner spends many hours watching those programs. I love them. Yep. Uh, what TV series is an accurate, a more accurate reflection, reflection of politics? The West Wing, House of Cards, or Veep slash The Theater? All right. Um, gosh, probably probably Veep. Probably I like. Veep. I'm a fan of Veep. Yes. yes. Uh, are you a sci-fi movies buff? No, I'm not. You're not I, a sci-fi. No, movie I'm not a sci-fi person. You're not a sci-fi person at all. Oh, I'll skip over that one. No, I haven't even seen Star Wars. Well, the question was Star oh, Wars right. or Star Trek. But no, 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 I don't, no, no. That's sorry. Uh, first album you purchased? Oh, first album was probably um, Ian during the Blockheads, New Boots and Panties, which had yeah. uh, great songs like Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll, Plasto, Patricia, had Love and Nina in the back of my Cortina, which, I'll, yeah, so there was some good old Ian during the Blockheads, good old punk. Second was probably Sex Pistols. Okay. Um, reasons <laughs> to be cheerful. Part three. That's right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yep. What's your favourite political fi- uh, fictional book, film or TV series? You're Australian. Oh, fictional um, well, I actually, uh, the one that, uh, Chris Yulman wrote, I can't remember what it's called, the one that's actually set in Canberra, the one that's, they okay. turned into that, um, film, I can't remember what it's called, but it was, it was quite good. Okay. Had a bit of murder mystery attached to it as well. Again, that same genre of, um, Chris Yulman and Steve Lewis, who used to write at The Australian, wrote a book that, yeah, Switch. was good. Switch or something like that, yeah. I can't remember. Yeah, that was, I that was pretty good. That was good. Uh, inferior Australian cities, Brisbane or Perth? Inferior. They're both wonderful <laughs> cities. Per- I would say Perth at the moment, only from an economic perspective, they've got the fallout from the uh, commodity price decline. And ah, although house prices house prices are getting very affordable in Perth, they're down about twelve percent over the last two years. So, um, inferior only on the economic scorecard, not in any other sense. 
Okay, that's that's their they're great answers. Um, now, before we wrap up, um, is there anything you want to plug now? Because it's your chance. Right. Uh, well, plug. The, the only thing I'd like to plug is maintaining a really strict discipline on fact-based comment and criticism and analysis of policy changes and even analysis of the economy and things. Um, again, when we see, and this is something that I've learned from watching the media over many times. So, for example, an unemployment number, uh, if unemployment goes up, the headline is bad, unemployment's gone up. If unemployment goes down, they say a bad unemployment number because it means interest rates are going to go up. <laughs> so I think you've got to just take a step back and think about what actually is the agenda of the people writing stuff that you see. It's not so much this fake news thing, which mm. of course is an issue, but it's really sort of... Um, it's the real uh, news that's been skewed. Skewed to suit an agenda for people to read. And in fact, some of the stories that are related to you know, uh, house prices and things can be really melodramatic. And it's easy for someone to say, oh, Professor Steve Keen, house prices are in a bubble, they're going to fall 40% and we're going to have 25% unemployment. That gets an incredible front page coverage and massive clicks and all this stuff. But hang on, it's utter rubbish. And he said it so many times now that he has no no credibility. No offence, Steve. But, (laughs) you know, but so it's really just sort of trying to work out what is a headline-grabbing... Uh, article or the people who write that stuff and working out what's actually really happening uh, in the economy, in public policy, on the budget, does debt and deficit matter and these sorts of things and really just sort of working out whether that story that you're hearing, seeing and reading is actually well-founded or whether it's someone pushing an agenda. Okay. That's that's really good. a really interesting answer, actually. Um Okay, thank you for taking the time out to come on our show this week, Stephen. Uh, you've been the best economist we've had on the, as a guest so far. <laughs> thank you. Uh, thanks for listening to this week's episode of Pod on the Hill. And remember that each episode is available to download every Thursday or Friday morning on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast app you, you use. And don't forget to tell your friends. And to keep up to date with everything in the Victorian Labor, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Now, Stephen, to the most difficult part of the show for our guests... The song to which we finish on. Why? Uh, what is it and why? The song is Whip It with Devo, <laughs> uh, which brings back many, many a fond memory. I knew it before it was famous. Um, <laughs> I remember seeing Devo in uh, Sydney at the Horden Pavilion in about 1981. And it was just one of these fantastically boppy songs. It was a bit different to the punk stuff that I really uh, liked when I was a sort of a teenager. And I remember some good times with with Devo and Whippet, Whippet Good. (laughs) 